theme for 2017. And our theme's name is? Generational lift, not drift. I heard somebody say generational drift (laughs) over there. Generational lift. And uh, we really are striving for um, each one of our, um, um, I don't know, demographic segments or life stages or generations to be lifted this year and called higher in being like Jesus Christ. And so this upcoming midweek, we are, like Cody said, um, starting another midweek series calling us back to faithful expectations of loving God. So I really want to encourage everyone to come on out on Wednesday and bring your family, bring your friends. I think it's going to be a great time. Now, at the same time, we've been having different breakout classes for each uh, generation. So this Wednesday, it's the married's turn to break out. Amen. So the um, campus, the singles, the teens will be right here in the main hall. And then the marrieds, we're going to go back into the breakout room and have our um, class on Wednesday. Amen. Okay, Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. It's great to have you. I had the chance to meet some of you this morning. Um, uh, It's just always great to be a part of the family of God, to have you come and visit the family of God, and and just see how God is working in all of our lives. So, um, if you could please turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 this morning. Uh, The title of the lesson this morning is, But God Remembered Noah. But God... Remembered Noah. Part of our generational lift theme is this sermon series that we're doing on Sundays in the book of Genesis. And we've seen how God created the world and everything in it, how he made Adam and Eve in his image, how he placed them in the garden and let them eat from any tree in the garden except for the one that was in the middle of the garden. We saw how the serpent deceived Eve first, but Adam fell headlong into sin with her, and through them, sin entered into the world. And unfortunately, it's kind of been all downhill from there. Um, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, but yet there was still hope. As the serpent was cursed, God said that he would put enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head while the serpent would strike the seed of the woman's heel. And that seed was brought into the world, so we thought, through Cain, the firstborn. But he was evil, as we found out last week, and he killed his brother Abel in the first murder. And so God, in his power and grace, continued the seed of the woman through Seth. You can put up my next slide. In Genesis 5, we read about the line, of, and this is hard to read, I'm sorry. But anyway, I think you'll get the point just from the colors. But in Genesis 5, we read of the line of of Adam and Seth being maintained through Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and eventually Noah. Now, these people live some incredibly long lives, um, so much so that Lamech, who was Noah's father, you see the blue line, the blue vertical line? The blue vertical line extends from the beginning of Lamech's life, who lived 777 years. But if you trace it all the way up to the top, what you see is that Adam and Lamech overlapped. So Lamech would have had the privilege of being bounced on Adam's knee as Adam was an old, old man about to pass away. And this was Noah's father. 
So if you could imagine being Noah and talking to your dad and your dad saying, yeah, I knew Adam. You know, Adam bounced me on his knee. I remember stories about Adam. Wouldn't that be like an amazing thing? And so that's uh, what happened there. The green line vertical is the flood. And so you see, for instance, Methuselah. Methuselah lived all the way up to the time of the flood, 969 years, the longest uh, recorded lifespan in the Bible. And um, Lamech lived very close up to that time. He died about five years before the flood occurred. Anyway, what's the point here? Why did they live so long? That's my point. Um, I don't know, but it seems as if the conditions before the flood were different from the conditions after the flood. Because even though you might not be able to read the numbers and the names, you can see that the red bars get shorter and shorter after the green line. You see that, right? So before the flood, somehow they lived really, really long. You know, it's, it was that organic food they were eating. And then after the flood, the, the lifespans got shorter and shorter and shorter until where they are today, where, you know, we're fired up if we get to live 100, 100 years. So that's where we're at today. Uh, this morning, we'll look at how God, despite the wickedness of the world, continues to preserve his seed in the life of Noah. And we'll see that God judges the wickedness of men, but as always, he's merciful and he saves the righteous man, Noah, and his family. Now, unfortunately, the sermon is going to be longer than 20 minutes, okay? So we're going to have to double down on our attention span abilities. And maybe after each point, maybe that's the time that we can kind of reset that Brian was talking about. We'll go for 10, 15 minutes and then... All right, reset and we'll get focused again so that we can get through the entire sermon. Amen. And that's going to be significant because we're covering three and a half chapters this morning. Genesis six, Genesis seven, Genesis eight and half of Genesis nine. I won't read it all. but We are going to cover all of that ground. Let's pray, but I do want to um, let you know, we prayed for a brother in L.A. about three weeks ago, two weeks ago, Kevin Maines. He's an evangelist. He leads one of the largest regions out in L.A. He was playing um, pickleball, which I think is kind of like either handball or squash or something like that. Unfortunately, he he had a heart attack that day. Um, He lost all of his brain function. The brain function never returned, and he passed away on Thursday night. So his family obviously is asking for prayers, continued prayers from the church of comfort and help and hope as they deal with uh, the loss of our brother, Kevin. So let's pray at this time. Uh, God, we um, know that you're sovereign. We know that you bring us into this life, that you take us out, that we are formed from dust and to dust we eventually return And as as sad as mortality is, Father, and and knowing that life um, is cut short for many of us, uh, God, we're grateful that our brother Kevin had his soul saved. That uh, many years ago, Father, that um, he made a decision to make you Lord of his life, that he uh, spent many years uh, preaching the word faithfully and fiery and passionately, God, and saving many souls in the process. We pray for Mary, his wife. Um, Stuart, his son, and his other children as well, that um, they would be comforted during this time of loss of their father, um, but that they, that they would always um, still just be focused on you, that they would um, realize that um, this is a, a time to reflect and to 
to, uh, I guess, double down on their, their efforts to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, we, it always hurts when we lose loved ones, um, but we know that you're always there. You're always near and dear to the brokenhearted. And we pray that you're with his family at this time. We also pray for our um, Bible study this morning here in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, that you would help us to be attentive and that you would um, help us to be um, convicted at your judgment, but also um, inspired, encouraged, and grateful at how merciful you are in our lives. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's just start out reading just 12 verses. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so there's three sub-themes woven into this entire story of Noah through Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. We're going to pick up on three of those uh, meta-themes or, or broader themes and talk about that. The first one is the wickedness of men. The second is the judgment of God. And the third is the mercy of the Lord. And so the wickedness of men. Uh, we have to talk about the Nephilim. Um, it's just a few verses about these guys, but they stir up so many questions. When we were in Trinidad, I think I got more questions about the Nephilim than I've gotten in all of my years as a Christian. Everybody wanted to know about the Nephilim. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about them. Some think they're space aliens. Some think they're like the Illuminati, you know, one eye and all that kind of stuff. The Bible does say that they were giants. But there's two general views that I'll try to condense and compact very, very briefly. One is this reference to the sons of God. The Hebrew word is bar Elohim. Bar means son of Elohim means God. And so the, the, this, the, the one line of thinking goes that the sons of God were this, again, this continued seed from the line of Seth, meaning that they were good and they married the daughters of humans who are looked upon as bad. 
And so because these good ones married the bad ones and that contaminated the race and human beings. And that's why all this drama was going on here in Genesis chapter six. And the reason why God had to destroy the earth. The second view is that these sons of God or the bar Elohim are not good, but they are evil. And I think that there's some basis for that. If you look in Job chapter one, Job, you can put up my next slide. Job chapter two and Job 38 is the only other places that bar Elohim is used. And uh, especially in Job chapter one and two, uh, you remember the verse where it says that the angels came to God and Satan came along with them. Right. And Satan began to talk to God about, you know, hey, I'm trying to find somebody that I can tempt and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so that that. Word Bar Elohim is used there referring to angels or angelic beings, specifically fallen angelic beings. And so the thinking is that those um, creatures, the sons of God, are actually evil and they mated with the good who were the daughters of humans. I I tend to lean with the second one myself personally, which would uh, equate to the Nephilim seemingly being offspring of these non-human, evil, angelic beings and daughters of humans. And you think that's kind of like some Twilight Zone stuff going on there. But, I mean, I'm just going off of the basis of of how the word is used in other parts of scripture. Every single time it's used, it's used to refer to a non-human, angelic being. And so that's what I'm basing it off of. Let's just keep going. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, says that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's like, whoa. And then in verse 11, again, now the earth was corrupt. In God's sight, it was full of violence. And in verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. I mean, if you can't say it enough, he's trying to drive home the point that human beings in the earth was corrupt. Did you get that? Did that come through? He's making this reference to the wickedness of men. I always give the example when I'm studying the Bible with people that we tend to view ourselves like pages of the Bible. You see how the pages of my Bible are for the most part white referring to good, but then there's the the type or the print that's on there that would be referred to as bad. And we think of ourselves as, well, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, you know, I I mess up and, you know, there's a lot of things that I don't do right, but at my core, I'm a pretty good person and I'm okay. And I always tell people, I know that this is the way we think of ourselves, but in actuality, we're more like this, where pretty much we're all black, we're all messed up, right? Except for like this little, this little gold print that's there, it says like premium leather, and then it has like the ISBN number there. Like that little bit of stuff is kind of like represents the, the good that's in us. And I think that that's the point that the writer is making here in Genesis, that Although we may think, we may sit on our high horses, we may feel, we may stroke our egos and help us to feel like we're, we're really good, in the end, we're not. We're corrupt. 
Our hearts are messed up. What does it say in Jeremiah chapter 17? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Psalm 14 says they are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, it says. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Mark 7:20, Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I know that this is how I am. On my best days, I'm a mess. I struggle to do good. I want to, but it's hard to do it. It's hard to be humble and to allow myself to be mistreated or to be not understood. I'm selfish. I have to fight to give emotionally to people. Everything in me is kind of like this sucking black hole. It's like, come on back, Tony. And I've got to fight it to give emotionally. I don't like relying on other people. It takes a conscious effort for me to be dependent on somebody else. And so if I'm like this, I assume this is how we are. I don't think that I'm an odd man out here. We've got to look in the mirror and realize that even the best of us on our best days are a mess at best before God. And that's why we all need Jesus Christ. Amen. And I'm so glad that Jesus is there because he can cure a messed up mess up like me and a messed up mess up like you. Because if it were up to us, forget about it. Are you with me? Second point, the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Now, again, back in chapter six, verse seven, it says, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them, the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I've made them. Can you believe that man was that wicked that God actually said, man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly what he thought, but that's what I think when I read this, like that almost as if, and I know God doesn't make mistakes, but it's almost like he's saying, maybe I made a mistake. Like these guys are worse than I thought they were going to be almost. And he like had regret in his heart. For making man? Like, whoa, that's deep. Chapter 6, now looking in verse 13, it says, So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. 
Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Whoa, notice how sweeping and comprehensive the language is. All life, every creature, everything will perish. Chapter 7, verse 4. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And then chapter 7, verse 17. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry, or dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. That's judgment. And when God executes judgment, it is sweeping, it is total, it is complete, and it is powerful. There's debate as to whether or not the flood was a local or a worldwide flood. I mean, this language here seems to me, when he says everything, every living creature, I guess that means everything and every living creature. So wherever there were living things and living creatures, that's where the flood was. That's all that I can get from that. When God slams his gavel, his judgments are complete and they're final. Now, we didn't address this question at the Troas night, but Jonathan wanted me to make sure that I did my best to answer this next question. You can hit my next slide. What happened to the dinosaurs? (laughs) What happened to the dinosaurs? Now... There obviously were dinosaurs, okay? Dinosaurs did live, breathe, and walk on planet Earth. We cannot deny that. They're fossils, okay? But what happened to them? And maybe in in particular, does their existence conflict the Bible in any way? So to answer the question, what happened to them? They died. That's what happened to them. (laughs) How? How did they die? Was it a meteor that struck the Earth and... I don't know, was it bacteria that went all around and killed all of them? I don't know, but I I believe that the flood took them out. That Noah, as he gathered animals on the ark, that they would have come in two by two, including dinosaurs. And and, um, a lot of uh, scientists are saying now that the dinosaurs actually were not that big. So they probably would have been able to fit into the ark. And they probably wouldn't have brought like full grown Dinosaurs. They would have brought like young, you know what I mean? Young animals that are small enough to fit in the ark. So if you can imagine like two by two of each animal going into the ark, 
that leaves a whole lot of animals left on planet Earth. And as the waters rise, all animals get wiped out, including the dinosaurs. When the waters recede, all the animals come out of the boat. And it seems like, again, somehow atmospheric conditions had changed after the flood. I don't know exactly, specifically, scientifically, or meteorologically what happened there. I don't know. But it seems as if those dinosaurs that came off of the ark, they eventually died out too. Maybe not enough food. I, I, I don't know. But that's what I believe and that's what I think makes sense happened to the dinosaurs. So, was there any conflict between the existence of dinosaurs and the Bible? Um, some say that there is conflict because the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs. If there were dinosaurs, the Bible would have mentioned. Yeah, if there were dinosaurs, the Bible would have mentioned dinosaurs. And since the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs, therefore there can't be dinosaurs. And then you're left conflicted with the fossils that are there. On and on and on. Anyway, I don't think there's any conflict at all. Matter of fact, Job chapter 40 mentions the behemoth. You can go back and read about that. It sounds like a dinosaur to me. Job 41 mentions the Leviathan. You can read about that. Sounds like a dinosaur to me. And even in Genesis chapter 1 verse 21, where uh, God talks about making the creatures, in particular the sea, there's a Hebrew word there uh, that's called, the, the word is tannin or tannin. And this word in our Bible is translated as great creatures of the sea. In the New American Standard Version of the Bible, it's translated as great sea monsters. This word tanin is used many times in the Bible. Almost all of the other times that it's used, it's translated as serpent, dragon, or sea monster. So that to me tells me that something was going on back then. You know, that, that, that yes, that is in the Bible. But anyway, I'm on a tangent because of Jonathan. And let me get back to my point. The judgment of God. <laughs> Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, and it's interesting how much Peter references this um, flood account in his writings. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desires. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will be like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed 
It's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And so men's deeds were wicked and God judged them. He judged the world then and he will do it again. Not with water this time, but with fire instead. And I hope that we're not shocked or offended or emotionally damaged that God demands holiness and that he judges sin. This is who he is. Just as much as he's loving, just as much as he's empathetic, just as much as he's compassionate, God is righteous, God is holy, and God judges sin. It's who he is. If we feel uncomfortable with that, we got to get comfortable with it. God has to be this way. A holy and a righteous God cannot let sin go undealt with. It must be exposed. It must be judged. But he doesn't destroy us immediately when we sin. He's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And he gives us the chance to turn away from our lives of sin and embrace his love. If you are not on the narrow road that leads to life, a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, this passage here in 2 Peter 3 is speaking to you. Don't scoff. Don't have a lax attitude about getting right with God. Well, you know, they're always preaching and saying God's going to come. He hasn't come yet. Don't have that attitude. Don't take the time that you have for granted. The day of judgment will come when we least expect it. Use the chance that you have to repent. Don't go all American on me now and talk about how, Tony, you're being too hard. You're preaching fire and brimstone, and I don't like that. That goes against my cultural sensitivities. God is not an American, okay? He doesn't wear red, white, and blue. He wears righteousness on his sleeve. And I'm telling you, we get upset when somebody preaches something hard. That should not be. God said he wiped out the entire earth. You got to deal with that. You got to be okay with the sternness of God. Amen. For the Christians, the judgment of God serves as motivation for us to live holy and godly lives. It's not there to scare us into discouragement. It's there to make us say, all right, let me get right. Let me live the way God wants me to live. And we've got to ask ourselves, is this how I want to be found when he comes? If not, let's repent and let's get right. As I said in the beginning, the big idea of this could be that God judges the wickedness of men, but as always, he's merciful. He saves the righteous man, Noah, and his family. So the last sub-theme to consider is the mercy of the Lord. Genesis chapter, where am I here? Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and that he walked faithfully with God. In light of how much wickedness and violence there was at that time, how was Noah so different? 
I believe it was because he walked with God. That's what made him different. Like his great grandfather Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, the Bible says that he also walked faithfully with God before he was taken away. Noah was the tenth from Adam. And we know that seven and ten and twelve play significant roles in Genesis. But anyway, what does walking faithfully with God mean? It means he was a companion of God. It means that he went with God. It means that he had a meaningful relationship with God, an emotional connection with God. He kept in step with God. He stayed close to God and he remained within the boundaries that God set out for him. He was obedient to God. I don't know if you've ever read this and noticed that there's no recorded words of Noah in the entire um, uh, narrative account of Noah in the flood. He doesn't say anything. His actions speak. He doesn't need to say anything. In Genesis 6.22, it says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Genesis chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Can you believe like he builds this incredibly massive ark? I mean, where is he sourcing the wood from? I mean, who's helping him? How do the animals get into the ark? Where does he get the schematic diagram of how to lay that thing out? I mean, like, this is like an incredible task God is giving him. And Noah doesn't say, oh, God, this is just too much for me, man. I can't do this. The Bible says that he did exactly what the Lord told him to do. Noah, I'm about to send a flood. I'm going to wipe everybody off the face of the earth. You got about 100 years, brother. Build yourself an ark. Get the animals on it. Get your family in that ark. And get yourself in that boat. Noah's like, amen, Lord. I'll get started right away. Because he walked with God. He walked with God. Walking faithfully with God makes us different from the world as well. It makes us blameless among the people of our time. And it brings blessings. The first peak at a sign of blessing is Genesis 6, 18. And I know I'm like, I'm like all over this, these few um, chapters that we're covering today, but that's okay. Genesis six eighteen. the first peak that we get is God says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. There's a promise. A covenant is a promise. It's a contract from God where God sets the terms. There's no like negotiating like, well, you know, you do this and I'll do this. Well, let's just change that a little bit because I'm not willing to do that. Let me do this instead. God says, no, 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 no. This is the covenant. Here it is right there. That's going to be our agreement. And in this case, God's covenant was a covenant where he fully set the terms and where he binds himself to this covenant. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But we see not just Noah, but his family, too, being spared when they enter the ark. The higher the waters rose to destroy the world, the higher the ark rose above the danger. Again, God preserving the seed of the woman. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, this is really the climax of the story. But it says, but God remembered Noah. That's simple. God remembered Noah. When things were at their darkest, the floodwaters were at their highest. Things were the worst. God remembers Noah. And he's merciful. And the floodwaters begin to recede. 
Once the waters recede, Noah sacrifices in chapter 8, verse uh, 20. And God receives that sacrifice, and he says in his heart in verse 21, never to curse the ground or destroy all living creatures again, even though man's heart had not changed. Verse 21, it says, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. It was still that way when they got out of the ark. But you see how merciful God is? So I know I wiped you guys out the first time. I know you guys are wicked. I know you're going to keep on being wicked. But I'm not going to destroy the world anymore. God is so merciful. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Noah is blessed at this point. Part of the blessing was... Being able to eat meat, verse 3. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Like, amen, we can have steak now. You know, it's not just celery. This is an awesome thing. But you can't have blood in it, though. God makes that clear. Finally, Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. It says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. The Hebrew word is literally the bow. And if you're reading an older, more strict translation, like a King James Version, or New American Standard Version, ESV, I think even it says a bow. Um, I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. What an amazing God. He's so amazing. He sets the bow in the sky as a promise to never destroy the world by flood. This bow in Israel's mind would have represented a a weapon of war. I mean, even today, think about an archer's bow. You know, bows are something that we use to, to kill or maybe to recreate with. It was an unconditional covenant. There were no conditions of obedience on man's part. God didn't say, if you do this. If you follow me, if you sacrifice, if you live a righteous life, then therefore I will not destroy the world anymore. He just said, you know what? This is all about me. This is a decision that I'm making. It ain't got nothing to do with you. I'm not going to destroy the world anymore. And so he restrains and he binds himself to exercise mercy. You know, Noah was a new Adam. He is representing now the human race as he and his family exit the doors of this ark. And the one, and Noah is the one that God uses to make a new start 
in this world. Now look back over in, this will be our last uh, scripture we turn to, 1 Peter chapter 3. Noah, again, was a prefigure of Jesus. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus, too, was used to make a completely new start. He gave his life to defeat sin and give us a new beginning. In Genesis, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3, chapter 18, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. You can put up the next slide. And so Peter uses the story of Noah to bring the point home to us about God's mercy. He says that the waters that flooded and destroyed the earth at the same time were the waters that saved Noah and his family. The floodwaters symbolize baptism that saves us also. Not merely a cleaning on the outside, removal of dirt from the body, but the pledging of a clear conscience from the inside. Baptism saves us in the same way that the flood saved them. Life on earth died and it was buried in the flood and it rose again as the waters receded and life started again. We too die to our old lives. We are buried and we are risen again to a new life through baptism. Many ask, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Does baptism save well, read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. It says, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. And then it says it again. It says, It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so jumping into water in and of itself doesn't save anybody. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in the resurrection that baptism is the power to save. And it seems so oddly simple, doesn't it? A rainbow in the clouds getting dunked in water. But it's supposed to be. It shows that it's not about us. It's not about our strength. It's not about our goodness, but it's about him. It's about his mercy in our lives. Let's be thankful and grateful for God's mercy. Amen. Amen. If you would like a new start and be made clean with a clear conscience on the inside, open the Bible with whomever brought you here this morning. Experience the mercy of the Lord and let baptism save you also by the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
In summary, we're not as good as we think we are. Our hearts are hopelessly corrupt. And God judges our wickedness. Not with water this time, but with fire. But he's merciful and he saves. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, including you and me, to come to repentance. Amen? Amen, church. Um, you know, just I appreciate this.